And um, so they're asking the question, do we get a, a you know, are we going to be your most prominent advisors? Are we going to be famous when you come into your kingdom? Like, what's going to happen for us since we're all in? And Jesus says, well, actually, it's kind of a little different than that, my kingdom. And the people who are great in my kingdom are actually the people that serve, the people that are humble, the people that maybe don't stand out as being the super important, rich, famous, rewarded sort of people. And it's kind of hard for the disciples to grasp that. And maybe even as we go through the Gospels, you can appreciate the sense of the disciples and us as well being people that have a little bit of faith. We see things not nearly as clearly as we should, and I think there's a great comfort in reading these stories in Matthew that when we fail or we don't see what God's kingdom is about, the disciples and those that came before us often failed to see that as well. So even as we come to Matthew 21, there's a lot of stories and there's a, a lot in this text, but I, I want you to just appreciate for a moment how difficult it was for the disciples and I think it's difficult for our contemporary ears as well to hear what Jesus is trying to say about the nature of his ministry and his kingdom. So let's read from Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord needs them and he will send them at once this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden the disciples went and did as jesus had directed them they brought the donkey and colt and put them on them their cloaks and he sat on them most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. 
And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And then he entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other one and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw their son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord is doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and I pray that as we come and study it, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us wisdom and knowledge, and that your spirit would apply it to our hearts. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, one of the favorite things that I would do on a leisurely afternoon was go to the bookshelf, and on the bookshelf was the entire Hardy Boys series. And so I would pull a book off, and, you know, I read rather fast, so an hour or two would do to go through. And of course, it always starts with the mystery, like Something bad is happening somewhere, and Frank and Joe and their cohorts get into the middle of it. And of course, there's always a bad guy, and there's a good guy, and there are all the things that you don't know. And as the story progresses, they learn more things about what's going on, until finally, at about eh, page 167, it all comes to a head 
with the good guys meeting up with Frank and Joe in whatever predetermined scenario for that particular book. And everything about the mystery is revealed and it is known. But the way it is when you're trying to solve a mystery is you haven't solved it until you've solved it. And within the Gospels, there is a sense for the disciples that they're in the middle of a mystery. Like there are all sorts of clues that Jesus is giving them, and the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people that are there, and even the children. I mean, we've got all of the crowds in Jerusalem in this text that are trying to figure it out. Like, what is the kingdom of God? Who is Jesus? How does this all fit together? And one of the challenges that sometimes exists in our lives is that we can fall into the trap that the people of that time fell into, which is to think that God's kingdom is something, A, that I can fully understand, B, something that I am smart enough or good enough to get into by my own behavior and the things that I do, or C, God's kingdom is a threat to the way that I want to live my life and I want nothing to do with it. And there are all these different re- responses to the, to the mystery and there are all these different answers that people come up with for what the kingdom of God is. And even within Christianity and within churches that proclaim the gospel, if you want to get a little bit of tension going... You just ask, well, what does it mean to live in God's kingdom? What does that mean for political engagement? What does that mean for your family? What does that mean for education? And then you start to see people have some different ideas about that, right? Like, because, and not not to kind of expose all of us, because we all want an answer, to what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. And we all want an answer that validates the way that we live our life. And that is the problem that Jesus is coming face to face with. The disciples want the answer that says, we've given up everything, you're going to give us everything. The scribes and the Pharisees want the answer, you're right, The way you're living is the nature of the kingdom. Do it that way. The rulers and Herod and the other people around in Jerusalem, they want the answer that the kingdom of God is something so totally separate from our life that we're going to keep our kingdom and it will be undisturbed. You have all these different answers for the kingdom. And sometimes, as it often is the case, the clues or the statements about what the kingdom really is that the Bible gives us are either glossed over or thrown aside for our vision rather than Jesus' vision for the kingdom. So God calls us to have a vision for his kingdom. So we could put that as a theme for this morning, a vision for the kingdom. Well, let's look at our text. And the first thing we see is that Jesus is the king He is the one that is the king that is bringing the kingdom. And this text is extraordinary in that this is not the sort of king that the world wants or is looking for. 
So here's Jesus, and there's so much in this text. So he says to his disciples, go get this, this donkey for me to ride into Jerusalem. And this is Passover week in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem would have had maybe at minimum five times the number of people as usual. So the place is packed, right? So I don't know if, if you've ever had somebody come and just uh, take your car out of your driveway. I hope that hasn't happened to you. But you can just imagine the modern-day equivalent. You know, you had your animals, right? Hey, somebody's stealing my animals out of the driveway. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, just tell them that the king needs them. Oh, okay. The king needs them? Which king? Jesus needs them? Well, I, I guess the people who own the animals must have heard about Jesus or known something about Jesus, and they're just like, all right, you take them. In that time and place, the world would have thought that a king came, a king would have come on their horse, their, their armored horse. They would have been wearing armor. They would have come in triumph. Um, kings would come into a city and they would, it was, the final, it was the final conquering of a city when the king had surveyed it. So in a sense, what the king's job would do after his army had wiped out um, the enemy, the king's job would be to come and to look over the land. That was the sign that I am claiming this for myself. I have seen it. And so Jesus comes in, and he's not like this king. It doesn't seem as if his army has come through and blitzed the city and conquered it for him. And he's not coming in uh, for war, but he's coming in for peace. And that made no sense to the people there. The, the scribes certainly didn't see him as somebody who was coming in with peace. The rulers, the people that were there, they didn't see him as coming with peace. They, they saw this as a threat to their kingdom. And the, the, the symbol of coming in on a donkey, it just meant, it meant that there's no war. There's not the kind of war you're expecting. And this had to have just been a little startling for the disciples. Like, this is going to be our week. It's Passover. Everything's coming to a head. All the Jews are in Jerusalem. And we're coming in on a donkey? And then there are the crowds. And, you know, I want us to, to appreciate in this text that it says Jerusalem was stirred up. And it's easy enough to be stirred up about things that happen in our world, right? I mean, maybe you read the news or uh, uh, watch TV and you see wars that are going on in our world at this moment in time, and it's, it's easy to be stirred up. You know, what's going on? How is this going to work out? How does this all fit together? As Jesus comes in, Jerusalem is, is stirred up, but there's not, a, there's not a sense as what they're stirred up to. <laughs> they're just kind of stirred up. And sometimes God's people are really good at just being stirred up about things. But do we do anything with them? Is there faith? Is there action? Is there belief? And so Jesus is coming in, and there is a sense at the beginning of chapter 21. This is not the kind of king, a humble king brought in by a donkey. Well, so we've got this humble king. And the king, of course, would go to his palace, right? That's what kings do. 
And what would be the closest thing to a palace for the kingdom of God? At least for a Jew, it would be the Jerusalem temple. This is Herod's temple. It had been built probably 50 years previously or rebuilt. It was built on the model of Solomon's temple, and there were courts and other things that were made to even expand it. And so for the world at that time, it was impressive. Maybe not as impressive as Solomon's temple was. It wasn't gold-plated and whatever else like Solomon's temple, but it was an impressive place. And one of the things that happened at Passover is you had to do business on a pretty broad scale because you have tons of people that need sacrifices. And I don't know how many of you have ever tried to throw a goat or a sheep into the back of your SUV and bring it to church. Um, And especially if you live a long way away, throwing a goat in the back of your SUV to bring to church is really inconvenient. And if you need a goat... It'd be a whole lot better if the elders were selling them in the fellowship hall, right? I mean, that'd just be the natural thing. Yeah, I can get a goat from the elders in the fellowship hall, and, you know, they charge an extra 20 bucks so that the church can make money, but it's going to missions. You know, it's a good cause. So we'll buy our goat in the fellowship hall, and we'll bring it in, and, um, you know, both the pastors will be working overtime to get them all slaughtered um, for the sacrifice. I mean, Josephus said that the blood was just all over the place at Passover because you'd have, I mean, tens of thousands of sacrifices that were happening, right? So you have this, this, this Jesus is walking into a big economic enterprise that is happening at the temple. And there's a sense of, wow. I mean, if you were a Jewish person, this would have been Holy Week, right? And so Jesus comes in and his response is anger and disgust. If anything symbolized the kingdom of God, it was Jerusalem and the temple. If you think for a moment, if the, if the elders turned Grace Covenant into a flea market Sunday morning, and that was the environment that you walked into, I hope that some of you would be like, that isn't right. So Jesus is greatly upset with what he sees in verse 12 of our text. He, he overturns the money changers' tables. He drives out the animals. And he says, here is what has happened. You have made my house into a den of robbers. The kingdom of this world says, Religion is for the benefit and the enrichment of people. Jesus comes in and says the kingdom is not about that. The kingdom is about prayer. The kingdom is about healing. The kingdom is about caring for the least of people. And so Jesus heals those that are sick. And I appreciate how this works well with uh, what we're learning in Matthew 28 that Patrick talked about. What's the purpose? For the nations to be discipled, to grow, to come here and to see these Israelites. Their God is something different, someone different. How often do we try to make God's kingdom about the show? 
Regrettably, I don't have any smoke machines. And I didn't rappel down from the ceiling this morning. But how often is it that we make God's kingdom about the show? Wow, if we have a better show than those people, then maybe the people will come and learn about Jesus. If we make lots of money, if the church budget is a million dollars over, we're really, we're really doing kingdom work. Sometimes the metrics and the way that we measure things, certainly the temple would have been flourishing. Anybody would have looked and say, the place is packed today. And Jesus says, there's nothing there today. So we go, we go from the king to the kingdom, and then Jesus gives us an illustration of just what the problem is at the temple. And he uses a fig tree as an illustration. That fig tree that had no fruit, he said, that's the temple. It looked good. It was in full bloom. You would think, wow, that's amazing. And you go and there's nothing to it. It's going to be cursed. And it's going to die. And it's going to disappear and it will be no more. Now there's all sorts of uh, promise and fulfillment going on here. There's a sense that, hey, this temple isn't needed anymore because I am the fulfillment. Jesus is saying, look at me, not at all these sacrifices. But there's a great sorrow that Jesus has. It's, I would liken it to... About 25 years ago, I went with my dad, and I, I went with him back to where he grew up. And I went with him to the church that he grew up in. And I just re remember his, his deep sadness as we left. And he had a conversation with one of the elders as he, he left that he had known as a young man, and he said, what happened? This was a, a place that used to proclaim the gospel with power, that used to be centered around God's word, and what happened to it? It's not there anymore. I have to think that that's a little bit of the sense that Jesus had, that the temple is supposed to be a place where God's people gather to pray and to know him, and there's just none of that anymore. So there's the king, there's the kingdom, and then there's the prophecy of the coming kingdom. So we have a bunch of stories and interactions that fill out the rest of Matthew 21. And the first one is a story about Jesus and the chief priests and the elders. Now, chief priests were political appointees, so these were not necessarily religious people, they were people appointed to do a job, to kind of keep the temple rolling. And if they did a good job and kept the Jews in their place, they got paid well. It was kind of a posh job. It had a good pension at the end of it. And if you didn't well, do well, you probably got killed. But, you know, their interest was in maintaining the temple. 
And so Jesus was crossing them. And so they ask him, so what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus said to them, uh, great question. I'll get to it. But first I've got one for you. My question for you is this. Verse 25, the baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And so they're chatting with each other, you know, um, and they're like, oh man, he's got us. Like if we say it's from man, the people won't like it because they think he was a prophet. And we, if we say it was from God, then we're kind of acknowledging that maybe God has some authority. And we certainly don't want God to have any authority because moi is the authority. And so they're just like, oh, Jesus, you got us. You're just too good at this. Like, why do we even try to play trivial pursuit with you? We lose every time. And Jesus says, all right, well, I'm not going to tell you. And sometimes I think the Bible just operates on wonderful understatement. Miracles are happening. The sick are being healed. The lame are walking. It's happening right in front of these guys. Like, does the devil do such things? No. It is obvious to anyone that has eyes to see and ears to hear and whose heart is not as hard as possible that he does this through the authority of the Lord, through Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the one and true God. And they're just like, we of course know, but we wanted to trap him. And we couldn't trap him. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, here's the clue to the kingdom. What sort of authority does what I'm doing? And he leaves that, in a sense, for them to answer for themselves. What sort of authority can do what Jesus does? So that's clue number one of the kingdom. Clue number two are the citizens of the kingdom. So he gives a, another story about two sons. One who's told to do something and says, no, I won't, and does it. And the other one that's told to do something and says, yeah, I got it, and, won't do, and then doesn't do it. And I know that if you're a parent, sometimes this happens. It's happened to me in my life that there's been a lot of protestation and it got done. And there's been, at times, yeah, I'll do that, and it never gets done. And Jesus says, listen, here's the deal. The people that know the law, the people that know the Bible, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, the people that are smart, they are looking for the kingdom, and they say, yes, we're for the kingdom. And when the king comes and they have the opportunity to follow, they don't want to follow him at all. And then there are the people who sin, who have rejected the truth, who have lived lives in blatant disobedience to God's law and God's word. And they get the message, and they say, well, that's not my religion, that's not my thing. But then after they hear it and they see the power of God and the power of faith works in their hearts and lives they believe so the sign of the kingdom the clue to the kingdom 
is that it's the people who haven't earned it and don't deserve it that are coming in. So that's clue number two. Clue number three is that those who think they're in the kingdom and are outside the kingdom will seek to kill the king. It's simple enough. He gives the parable of the tenants. And he's talking about the Old Testament prophets that came. And God sent the prophets. And what did God's people do? They rejected them. If you read through those, you know, if you're looking for a good pick-me-up after a really depressing day, just pick up the book of Jeremiah and read it front to back. What's in there? One prophecy of judgment after the next, after the next. And one tragedy and hard-heartedness of kings and rulers of Judah after the next, after the next. It's like this slow-moving disaster that you watch. And you say, when will they get this? And what do they do? Well, by God's grace and mercy, Jeremiah is, is spared, but certainly the king and many people have murderous intent towards him. And we see the tension in this story is that we want to arrest him and we want to kill him, but we're concerned for our own skin because some people like him. So what are we going to do? And of course, we know how that works out. But Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, in a sense, it's a last warning. If your hearts do not soften... And if you do not turn, if you do not see the clues that point to who the king is, then you will carry through with your murderous intent. And is there any repentance? There is none. Other than they're they're angry. They're just like, Jesus, he's, he's calling us out. We don't want to be called out for our sin. We don't want to be called out for the things that we do wrong. How many of you like it when somebody calls you out when you've done wrong? Like, it's a really unpleasant experience. And it's really easy to think it's that person's fault for calling me out. That's kind of our default response. To get mad at the messenger who's proclaiming hope. That's their response. To get mad at the messenger And Jesus says you're going to kill the messenger. But there's one more clue to the kingdom. There's Jesus' authority. There's who's in the kingdom. There's the murderous intent of the the bad guys. But Jesus says, and then there's the resurrection. Verse 42, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He says, listen, it's not going to be the end when you kill this messenger. There's a clue that God's kingdom goes on even if people go after and kill the messenger. Even if they go after and kill the king. That's not the end of the king, nor is it the end of the kingdom. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to the people who are producing its fruits. So, we've got the king, 
clues about the kingdom, these prophecies and clues of what's coming. What does that mean for us here this morning in Minnesota on a beautiful fall day? How does it apply to our lives? Well, first of all, what are the things in our life that are lots of flash and don't have a lot of content? What are the things like the temple that in our lives we spend lots of time polishing and perfecting and making to look good, and in truth, there's just nothing underneath them? What of our religious practice at times can simply be going through the motions? It looks good, it seems good, but it's just a lot of fluff. Can we walk around with our own self-importance as the big thing? Do we walk around with ourselves as the authority? Our kingdoms being utmost. Do we sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that when we're building and getting the things we want, that somehow they are also the things that God wants? And within that, there are 800 complicated questions to ask about the heart. And there are moments of discernment that we each have in our lives where we have to ask the question, am I doing this as an extension of God's kingdom? Is my life defined by prayer and the gospel and the healing and the kingdom as Jesus presents it? Or the kingdom as I wish it would be? Another simple question to ask is, even as they asked Jesus, what authority do you live under? By what authority do you do all of these things? We should ask the question, whose authority are we under? Culturally, America, and this is, you know, I am not about the doom and gloom, there's a new generation that's rejecting authority thing. So, I mean, go back into the 1800s of America. Go back to the Enlightenment. Go back 300 years. We are the nation of individualists. As the, uh, what is it, the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The original draft was life, liberty, and the pursuit of wealth. Somehow happiness, which I'm not sure that's more godly than wealth. But whatever the case, it's been long generations and 250 years of the legacy of we are, are, are the controllers of our own destiny. We submit to no one. We are the final authority for everything and every decision that we make for ourselves. This isn't new. And it wasn't. It was a thing then. And it's a thing now. Are we willing to humbly say, the authority that I submit to is the authority of God and of his King Jesus? And I will submit to that authority even if it is hard for me to do so. There's also the question that Jesus puts out there, who is welcome? How can you see the kingdom? You can tell the kingdom by the way that it welcomes people. And I was, I, I was sharing with one of my children uh, this week uh, a story from when I was a kid. My dad was a pastor, and 
Um, there was a young man from the neighborhood, my memory is he is about 14 years old, and I was about 10 years old, and he came and he vandalized the church that my dad pastored, and he put some, some nice words on the church doors that were not so, not so helpful, and went through and caused a lot of damage through the building, and the, the police picked up this young man. And uh, my parents uh, made the effort to find out who it was and to connect with this young man. And the, the sentence he was given for his, his, uh, his vandalism was that he needed to do community service. And so my parents um, contacted his mom and said we would like him to do that service by coming every week to clean the church. And so this, this young man came to came to church, and his mom began attending church as well. And um, they were pretty colorful people. And I remember them coming over to my parents' house one, one day, and this was the 80s, so, you know, things were a little wild back then. And so they walk in the door, and uh, their last name was Pride, which is just a very interesting last name to begin with. Anyhow, you know, no, no more than one minute into our house, and uh, this young man's mom notices that there's a lack of ashtrays as she's lighting up in our living room. And as a kid, I'm just like, hmm, this is kind of interesting. Nobody's ever done this in my parents' living room before. Um, but, I mean, it was the 80s. So, you know, um, she's sitting there, and we have dinner, and they brought along a Scrabble game for after dinner. And, you know, the, the young man apparently had not fully reformed um, yet, and so he made up a word in Scrabble, and he, you know, said, yep, it's a real word, it's in the dictionary. And so, you know, he set the dictionary down, and his mom grabs it and says, I don't think so, and she's going through there, and, you know, she looks, and it's not in there. And so needless to say, the yelling and the dictionary launching across the table and the ducking and the... The uh, whatever else that followed that event um, will last in infamy in our household. But I, I came to appreciate, too, that who's the kingdom of God for? And I have no idea where those people are today and whether the Lord used that six months of community service and attending church and those sorts of things. I have no idea how that had an impact in their life. No idea if they ever, you know, taped the dictionary back together or not. Or, and thankfully, he was fast to duck. But who is the kingdom of God for? Is it for good people? And sometimes what keeps people out of the kingdom more than their sin is their goodness. And I think the struggle sometimes that keeps us from welcoming people into God's kingdom is our own felt sense of goodness. I'm a good person. I do good things. It should be that other people who come into the kingdom are like that too. The last question for application is simply, how do we respond to the gospel? And I want you to appreciate the disciples here. What do they do with all of the clues? It seems like they don't get them either. 
And I want us to appreciate that there is a tension that exists in Christianity that we do not ever want to walk around as people who say, I'm not sure what the Bible says. We need to be confident of what God's Word says, and we need to stand on it. And we need to stand on the gospel, as even Jesus says in this text, that he is the cornerstone. That's where you stand. The gospel will not let you down. God's Word will not let you down. But your arrogance will. And do not live your life dismissing the supernatural. Do not live your life dismissing the resurrection. You can, you can assent to that intellectually, but assent to it in your heart that yes, Jesus lives, and so also do I live in him. So is the mystery solved? Well, the Hardy Boys always bring it back around. They always solve the mystery. And if the question is, who is Jesus and what is his kingdom? Maybe there's a whole lot more that we all need to know. But we can know foundationally that Jesus is the Son of God. We can know absolutely that he acts with the authority of God. We can know that, yes, he even saw what was coming, his death. But in that, he also proclaimed that death was not the end and resurrection was coming. And we can know that we can come this morning to the Lord's table and taste and see that the Lord is good. And we can be joyful and take our refuge in him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the message of your kingdom. We pray that we would take it to heart. We pray that you would enable us by your grace and mercy to live out the gospel for a world that is so much in need. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.